Lord, it's not even 11 a.m. And you have been gracious to each and every one of us in 10,000 distinct ways. So we thank you. And Lord, I also pray that you would be gracious enough to bless and anoint this word with clarity and boldness that it would honor you, Jesus, and build up this church. In your name I pray, amen. We are going through the book of Mark, and we are in chapter one. Old news, we're always in chapter one. It's a long chapter, and we're taking it verse by verse. Today we're reading from verses 21 through 28. Now before I do that, before I go in and we dive into this, um, we're going to be asking the question, what is Jesus about? What is Jesus' ministry about? What, what does Jesus do? You know, we're at that po point in this chapter where Jesus is doing things. He's about some things. What are those things? And the reason we want to ask, what does Jesus do? Is because we want to know what we ought to be doing as Christians. And also importantly, we want to know what we ought to be doing as a church. And we have no greater example. And we are commanded to follow no other example but Jesus. So what is Jesus doing? And we're going to see that Jesus is really, really good at majoring in majors. And minoring in minors. He's really, really good at the basics. And I, I don't like to use that word because he's good at everything, but, but he gets the basics down. We see that in chapter one, Jesus is doing discipleship. Can't wait for fall where our church is going to go into discipleship groups and learn and follow Jesus through scripture in community. Jesus is devoted to teaching. We're going to get into that. Jesus is you could say unreasonably dedicated to prayer. We're going to learn all about that in the next couple of weeks. And Jesus pushes and confronts darkness. Demons are, are driven out and illnesses are healed. And Jesus does all of that today. And I love that Jesus does the basics. And I think we are called to those basics. We are called to those very, very same basics. You know, imagine how easy it is as Christians to get kind of lost and, and major in what is minor and make main what is, excuse me, minor. I forgot. I know how to preach, I promise. And so it's just, we could get this twisted. I was thinking about an example. Imagine you are teaching somebody how to drive the car for the first time, and you took a week of your schedule, and you put that person in the driver's seat, and there you are in the passenger seat, and you're teaching how to drive. And imagine starting off with like, son, let me teach you about the blinkers. Let me teach you about the six speeds of the windshield wipers. Let's master that first. Now, I want you to know, when you go to a gas station, there are three different numbers, 87, 89, 92. I have no clue what that is. Just want to let you know, do 92 in this car. And hey, let me tell you how to open the trunk. Let me teach you all about the stereo. And we would say it there and think, hey, no. Teach him how to start the car. Teach him how to put it in drive. And teach him what those two little pedals mean over there. And teach him what to do with the steering wheel, the basics. And Mercy Church, here, the greatest compliment sometimes that can be paid you or paid this church is they're really good at the basics. They do discipleship. 
They pray, they're into the teaching of the word, and they push back darkness with the light of Jesus. Let's do that. That's what this is all about. This chapter one, the second half of chapter one, is about those four things, and we're going to see them on repeat. So let me read the eight verses for you. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them not as one who had a he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with loud voice came out of him and they were all amazed so they questioned among themselves saying what what is this a new teaching with authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him and at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. You would have guessed, and guessed rightly, that the point of these nine verses, this text, is that Jesus has all authority. The Bible is very, very clear and highlights multiple times in various ways Interestingly, that totality of Jesus' authority. He has authority over nature, authority over illness, authority over demons, authority over angels because he could have called them down when he was getting crucified. A authority over life and death for he said, Lazarus, come out. And then eventually himself came out of that tomb. And scripture is so clear. And one of the things that is said over and over about a hundred times is that he has authority. Jesus is one with authority, rule, command, control, sovereign, reigning. He is authoritative or has authority. Now, we do want you to know, and we're going to discuss today, his authority his authority in teaching, and his authority in doing. But I want you to know something right away. That when it comes to authority, Jesus does not do it the way the world does it. Some say power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And you have seen that happen. <laughs> You've seen a friend or so co-worker get promoted and become a jerk. Maybe. Jesus' authority is complete and total. He has all authority and he has perfect love. With all authority, he does authority differently from any way or anywhere you look at in this world because he lays down his life. 
And I want you to keep that in mind. His authority, his power, his control, him being in command is a beautiful and glorious and the best thing that can happen to us. For he loves us. All authority is his. And he loves us so wonderfully. So let's go through this. And one of the questions I want to ask today is, what do we do with this authority of Jesus that we see here highlighted? Let's talk about it, and then let's talk about how we respond to the authority of Jesus. So let's begin with verse 21. And they went into Capernaum. This is a town, village, city, north of Galilee. You can, it was a big, big city for that region because you could go anywhere. They had a Roman garrison stationed there. It was a popular place. Interestingly, this was the headquarters of Jesus. This city was the headquarters of Jesus. So they, that's the four disciples in Jesus, went to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now, synagogues are not found in the Old Testament. Where do they come from? About 6th century BC, when Israel was exiled, Jerusalem and Judah fell they started gathering with like-minded Jews to read scripture, remember scripture, and talk about scripture for informal gatherings in exile. There's something about believers of God that wants to gather, that drives us to gather with others. And so they would gather together, and so when they came back from exile, to Jerusalem, to Judah, they started these synagogues, which would be informal places of worship. You had needed, all you needed was 10 males to begin a synagogue. And so on a normal Sabbath, Jesus shows up at a synagogue, maybe 30, maybe 50 people, we don't know, small setting, and he was teaching. Bingo. Jesus was teaching. Mercy, please understand that Jesus in his ministry on this earth dedicated himself. Almost the majority of what he was doing on earth was teaching. Fifteen times in the gospel of Mark we read the word he was teaching. Twelve times he is referred to as a teacher. He is always teaching. If you took a random day during the life of Jesus' ministry, like a Wednesday two years into his ministry, and you said, what is Jesus doing today? The likelihood is high that he was teaching. This shows us the primary focus of Jesus. The proclamation of the word of God. The word of God being proclaimed, declared, spoken, taught, explained, explained in parables. That was what Jesus dedicated himself to. Do you know what moves Jesus to compassion? Go to Mark chapter 6. Of your Bible. In verse 34, notice these words. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And what does Jesus do to fill this void? Began to teach them many things. Isn't that wonderful? That what makes Jesus stop and notice is not the poverty, physical poverty of Israel at that time. He cared about that. It is not the Roman oppression, political impression of Israel that gets Jesus compassionate. 
It's spiritual hunger that moves Jesus' heart to compassion. And he responds with teaching. I want you to remember tomorrow when you open the Bible to read in the morning and you feel dry. Just remember, your hunger moves him to compassion. When you open this word to read it tomorrow, just remember the desire of Jesus to fill you. For he satisfies a longing soul. And a hungry soul he fills with good things. Jesus' teaching is primary. Jesus desires to teach. I love how we see all throughout scripture the centrality of the word of God. When Jesus gives the last great commission, he tells the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have taught or I have commanded you. When Jesus commissions Peter in John chapter 21, what does Jesus tell Peter three times? Feed my sheep. In Ephesians Paul talks about how the body, which is the church, it's a metaphor for the church. A body like a physical body is like a church. That's what a church is supposed to be. The body of Christ is supposed to do things that Jesus does. Notice how we are the hands and the feet of Jesus. We're never the head of Jesus. We don't set the agenda. We're just the feet and hands of Jesus. And we are the body of Christ. And he talks about what makes this body grow. And he says these words, speaking the truth in love do you see how important the teaching of jesus? jesus dedicates himself to it we see all over new testament everywhere there's growth there is the word of god in play in acts over and over it talks about a church being built up which i love growing vertically to god built up in love built up encouragement and multiplying growing horizontally do you know the result, the reason why? The word of God is increasing. I want us to capture the importance of teaching of the word. I want us to capture the importance of learning the word, studying the word, bring, coming back to the primary role and central role of scripture. Look here, I'll put it this way for you. There can be a healthy church without awesome worship band. Now, praise be to God, we have an awesome worship band. I want to just thank you for being faithful Sunday in, Sunday out. I see the growth in our church, worshiping God. Thank you, worship team. But you can have a healthy band, excuse me, healthy worship with a pretty not good drummer. You can have a healthy church without an awesome building with a coffee shop, which is something I would love to have. Maybe in God's will, we will. You can have a healthy church without awesome kids programs. You will never have a healthy church without healthy preaching. If I told you there's a church in Amazon, ABC church in middle of Amazon, and they're growing, and you know nothing about them. There's one thing you do know. You know 
there is a healthy word of God being preached, being talked. Now you might say, Eugene, good luck with that. It's a lot of pressure on you. That's why I don't preach. That's why I sit in my chair. Good luck with that mountain. I do want to say, Jason and I desperately need your prayers. We thank you for your prayers. We feel your prayers. But this isn't just on the pastor. This is on every minister of the gospel, a.k.a. Christian. And every Christian is to give a primary central, central importance to this word. And this word being in their lips and blessing others. And so what I want to ask you, Mercy Church, is when this service is over and we're midweek in our week, are we still a church? Are we still building one another? Or have we died? Like, like the event stops, the church stops. And when the event starts, the church stops. I love to know, and we say this every time when, Church service is over, being the church continues. Bless one another in connect groups, in discipleship groups, over coffee, over text, in calls. Whatever you do when you see each other in the lobby, bless each other with the word of God. Because Jesus dedicates himself to the teaching of the word, which gives us the understanding that this is primary. And then we read these words. Let me go back. In verse 22, and they were astonished. Okay, translation, their minds are blown. They lost it. <laughs> Here's Jesus teaching, and they're just, they're, they lose their minds. They lose their minds. And, and we see one of the reasons, because he taught with authority, not as the scribes. I'm like, and I was thinking to myself, well, maybe I could give an analogy here. Like, imagine the scribes. It's like me playing basketball, me shooting, me trying to do a layup, 360 layup and all that. And then imagine comes on to the basketball court, LeBron James, and he starts to play. And you got to see both of us play. That's kind of what's happening between the scribe who teaches, who's a teacher of the law, and Jesus comes onto the scene. I realized that, that analogy stinks. There is no comparison for this. You got to get this. The eternal word that made the universe, that sustains the universe, the master of creation, eternal word comes into this little small synagogue with 30, 50 people and begins to speak. Mercy, you have to understand there would be no other option than to be floored. He opens his mouth and he teaches. And they say he teaches with authority and not as the scribes. And I'm, I'm thinking that's the biggest dumb moment ever. Of course not. Scribes, Jesus, master of the universe is actually speaking. See, we, we get to preach the word. When Jesus is speaking, it's always the word of God. And he is preaching with authority. And they are blown out of the water. Let me ask you this question. Have you stopped being amazed at the words of Jesus? Has it been a long time since you have been blown away, stunned by his glory, shocked into silence by his majesty, his love for you? When's the last time you 
had that moment. Because, you know, we love those moments where we just, we're just stunned by this. Those are the moments that produce tears. Those are the moments that make us impatient to come to church to worship God. Those are the moments that are so sweet. Are you amazed by his word? Are you amazed by what God is doing? Can I just say this? We're going to make this our prayer. God, I haven't been amazed. I have been amazed by your word, but I want to. I really want to. God, I know that the error is not with you. The fault is with me. Something's wrong with me, God, that I am read this word. I think this is homework. This is a chore. This is something you have to endure. Something's up with me, God. You know, I love holy discontent. You know, there's things we should be thankful for. Our circumstances, our possessions, our cars, our jobs. And there are a whole lot of things we should be really not happy about. Holy discontent. You know, the kind of people who are most humble are the people who are always unsatisfied with their pride. They're unhappy about their pride. They become humble. I have learned that the people who pray the most are the people who always believe they're not praying enough. I have learned that people who are passionate about Jesus are the people who kick themselves in the foot and say, come on, heart, wake up. You're cold. You're frostbitten. You're frozen. Like, wake up, heart. God, wake me up with passion. And when I think when we bring this prayer and say, God, I want to be amazed. I want to be amazed like these people were. And I truly believe Watch God do something in your heart when you read. But here's the big point. And this is the turning point in the sermon. I tell this to myself only. Have you stopped being amazed? Or for some of you, have you stopped at amazed? The goal of Jesus' teaching the appropriate response to Jesus' teaching was to be amazed. It was never the intended result. In verse 15, Jesus says this, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The goal is not to be astonished the goal is to repent and believe in the gospel. And so my question is, you know, are some of us here just stop being amazed, but some of us just stopped at amazed. We're blown away by Jesus' teaching. We're blown away by how incredible he taught about turning your other cheek and all this stuff. That's awesome. But the goal of his teaching is deeper. It's to go from amazed to I accept. <laughs> to go from amazed to I'm all in, to go from amazed to I surrender all to you, Jesus, to go from amazed to saying, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior. Don't stop at amazed. Be amazed, but if you're stopping there, that is not the goal. And what are they amazed by? Twice we see here that Jesus taught with authority. His teaching is authoritative. Now, I want to ask you this question. Well, what does that mean? What, what do we do with that? Jesus' teaching has authority. What, what does that mean? It means it has, 
Jesus' teaching and the totality of the teaching of Scripture has the final word on all things called truth. Sat settles the matter, matter of all things truth. And this is super, super important. Because if you ask me this question, well, what does it mean to have Jesus' teaching be authoritative? Or Jesus' teaching have authority? I would answer probably it means that you look for the commands of Jesus somewhere in this text and you obey them. That authority of Jesus' teaching means you read the Bible, you see where he says do something, don't do something, be something, don't be something. You do that. I want to say that is correct, but incomplete. What does it mean to have Jesus' teaching be authoritative in our life? Come under this authority. It means, yes, we obey Jesus in all that he has commanded. But watch this. Importantly, we accept also the reality this scripture discloses. I want to just explain that a little bit. I was praying about if I could explain this actually. Because in my mind it makes sense. Then when it comes out of my mouth, I'm like I'm losing people. Let me do my best here. Not all that Jesus teaches sound like commands. There are times when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, pray for your enemy. Awesome. Jesus, I, I obey that. Jesus, I'm going to try to do that. But then Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. Right? About a father who had two sons, and the older son was kind of the religious son. He was stubborn, grouchy. And then he has the younger son who's rebellious. And the rebellious son asks for his inheritance, his educational fund. He goes and he spends it all. He spends it on gambling. He spends it all. And then he has nothing. He's with the swine. He decides, you know what? I'm just going to go to my father's house and, and, and try to be a servant. I, I know I don't deserve to be a son, but I'm going to try to be a servant. Let me just go in there. And, he, and the son starts to walk, and the father sees him from far away, as if he was waiting all along, and runs towards his son, and throws a big party. My question to you, what are we supposed to do with that story? What's the authority in that passage? The invitation in that passage, the authority of that story is this, that you would accept who God is and what he is like. See, Jesus there is portraying for us a father. And what that means is for every sinner, every person who's backslidden, it doesn't matter how far you have backslidden, you can go very, very, very far. When you come to God, he will never reject you. He is giving us an understanding of the father and for that teaching to be authoritative means that we come under and we say, I, I accept that. I, I obey in all the commands that you have commanded, but in everything that you disclose about the Father, about the kingdom, about life, about what's important to God, I also accept that. When Jesus says, don't store up for yourself treasures here on earth, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven, here's what that means for us. There is a heaven reality. And there are things you do here on earth that directly affect what you got there in eternity. And I, I don't know how to explain that, Mercy. A lot of things I'm not called to figure out. I'm just called to trust. <laughs> uh, 
That means that in heaven, we're going to be perfectly joyful, nothing defective. Every single believer in the presence of God, there is a heaven, there's eternal life, there's afterlife, and we're going to be there joyful. And at the same time, rewards matter. And there is classification for rewards. And somehow we're going to, that's going to all work out in the end. But do you see, Jesus teaches in stories and in commands. And he's asking in the invitation is, is that your reality? Is that how you think about life? Think about the story of a Pharisee who, or a leader came to, comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, who is my neighbor? You know, that's the kind of question where you're looking for a loophole. Who's my neighbor? Jesus? Like, I know I'm called to love my neighbor as myself. But like, who is really my neighbor? Jesus? Is it Frank down the street? Tell me about this. And then Jesus tells him a story about a guy walking from Jericho to Jerusalem. Or Jerusalem to Jericho. And he's walking. He gets beat up by robbers. And there's a priest who comes alongside and sees this beaten down man. And he avoids him. And then there's the Levite. And he comes and he sees a beaten down man who is really needy. And he avoids him. And then there's the good Samaritan. He sees the need and he responds. And Jesus asks him, you know, which of these three was the neighbor? And Jesus defines for his followers who the neighbor is that you are called to love. And you know who that neighbor is? The next person you bump into in your life. The next people you meet on your road. I just want you to see that the, what it means for the teaching of Jesus to be authoritative is to me, it means to come under and accept the version of reality or reality itself that scripture reveals about life, about God, about goodness, about what is right, what is wrong, what is worth living. I mean, think about this. There are a thousand questions right now that you may be wrestling with. Is there a God? And if there is a God, what is he like? And is there an afterlife? I don't know. But if there is an afterlife, well, how do I get there? And what about this life? What is a good life? What are my priorities? What I should be doing? What is a good, valuable life to live? And the question is, well, who, where do you go for those answers? And this is where we realize he has all authority. And his teaching is decisive in answering those deep questions. The question is, have you accepted his authority for all of those answers, questions? It's not just the commands. It's the big stuff, the big questions about life. Have you come under his teaching? He teaches with authority. God, help us, help me accept this in my life. And then the story changes to an interesting story. And immediately there was, in the synagogue was a man with unclean spirit. And he cried out. So this is a great example of what we just talked about being applied in verse 23. In, it is no secret that in today's day and age, scientific, academic, empirical, five senses only, sophisticated, as we are, rational, as we are, that there is a denial of spiritual beings. There is. And yet, the Bible speaks of their existence. So here's the question, whose reality is? Do you submit to? What's your answer? 
I want to beg you and plead with you. Hop on Jesus' team. And here he says there is the existence, or what we can infer, of unclean spirits. This, there's a teaching in Scripture that there is one angel, Lucifer, who rebels against God and takes a third of angels with him. And they are embedded into human experience. They're in the air. They're in society. And these demons and this dark beings and this darkness opposes and hates everything that is God or is God's. Everything that is good and a blessing. Everything that is life for their purpose is one. Kill, steal, and destroy. And mercy, I, look, I, I'm, can't, I can't defend that. I can just say that's what Jesus says. That's what happened. And watch this, this unclean spirit, this demon, watch where he's at. <laughs> he's in the church. He's in the church. He hides himself in dead religion. Spirits of darkness love nothing more and appreciate nothing more than when Christianity to us becomes a big act, a big game, lifeless, fruitless, and they're there in the synagogue. And this demon, we read, is provoked. And there was an in the synagogue, a man with unclean spirit, and he cried out. Now, this is huge. You have to understand, until Jesus comes, demons and spiritual beings of darkness had nothing to worry about. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. They had nothing to worry about. They've never seen somebody like Jesus. Uh, they've never seen the light come into their presence. They, they, they had nothing to worry about, and they tormented and possessed and harassed people in creation. They held souls in their clutches for themselves. And Jesus came in. And immediately, the demon begins to shout and scream. He's terrified. Can I, look, this can be scary to some of us. But they, the demon begins to shriek and cry. Do you know why? He's afraid of Jesus. He's never seen something like that. He's never experienced it. Like, I mean, this is Jesus in my presence now. Maybe he has in eternity. I don't know how that works. But now Jesus is here and he starts to scream. Let me tell you something, Mercy. You have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. You know why? I'll tell you one simple formula that drives away all fear. Here's how fear is driven away. When the one I fear fears the one that lays down his life for me. The bully meets my big brother. The fear is cast away. Fear disappears when the demon, when I recognize the spirits of darkness, fear the one who loves me so much. 
I've got nothing to fear. That's the whole point in fourth grade. If you were ever bullied, right? You get your big brother to come with you. And all of a sudden, this bully has to really fear. And you have nothing to fear because you've got your big brother. And I love how Hebrews calls Jesus our big brother. Into all the spaces and the works of the devil. You've got a big brother with you. And he's with you. And when he shows up, demons begin to cry. And notice what he cries out. Oh, by the way, just want to point out, Jesus never like hunted demons. Jesus focused on the proclamation of the truth. And that provoked spirits of darkness. This is important because there's interesting people on YouTube. And there's <laughs> interesting people all over who will go out and make sensationalism out of this. That's not our calling. Our calling is to proclaim the good news. Whatever happens, we'll take care of it. But our calling, and so, you know, the demons, yeah, okay, anyway. And they cry out and they say something like, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Uh, the demon has very good theology. He, he's really on. By the way, in the Gospel of Mark, in the first eight chapters, the only beings that get who Jesus is are demons. They really understand who Jesus is. In this case, he's crying out. And he calls him Jesus. And notice that first, what have you to do with us? The demon is acknowledging that in his presence is a realm of light and a realm that does not belong to his realm. There is complete light and purity about Jesus. He is blameless. He is spotless. He is in power. He's clothed with glory that is concealed to everybody. But the demon knows what's up and he recognizes that darkness and light has nothing to do with it, which makes and I cannot avoid pointing this out. In Ephesians, Paul says, have nothing to do with works of darkness. Church, you are planted in a kingdom of light. That's who you are. That's where you are. And you have nothing to do with darkness. And this is why we cast that aisle and we repent and we do our best in the power of God. What have you to do with us? You have nothing to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? Another translation of this is, you've come to destroy us. Absolutely. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In this moment, what commentators point out is this demon is trying to get rid of Jesus. You've come to my space. This is my territory. I've got this. And Jesus rebukes him. Be silent and come out of him and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. The demon obeys the authority of Jesus. That obedience, I don't think was like willful. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how that works, but I don't think it was like, okay, I guess I'll go. That was necessary obedience on the part of the demon. Because someone in the presence has all authority over truth, which we just closed, disclosed, and over all dark powers.
we're going to end and we're going to get a piano up here. But in this victory, I want you to know something is our victory. In victory of Jesus over darkness, my victory and your victory is there as well. For we too are freed from his clutches. For we too get to walk in freedom from darkness. I love the story of David and Goliath. Now, you know the story of David and Goliath. There's this big guy, a champion, gets put before the Philistines and he mocks God and he says, hey, come on, somebody face me, face me. And he's arrogant and blasphemes the name of God. And, and, and then there's David that comes out. He's a little guy with a sling. And for the most part, this story is usually told about you and me overcoming obstacles. Not bad, not bad. There's a deeper truth to this story. You and I, let me tell you where we're at. There's Goliath, darkness, and there's Jesus, David. And you and I are in the army. And when David slays Goliath, the victory that David has belongs to every man in that army. And that victory belongs to every woman in Israel. And that victory belongs to every child in, that is, in Israel. Theologians call this, his victory, the victory of David, is imputed to the rest of us. In conquering sin and death and the devil, his victory is our victory. And some of us are afraid. Some of us feel harassed. Some of us have things going on in our lives. We're confused. We have nothing to explain. And I want to call you today to the simple faith of a baby. Trusting in the mighty completed work of our hero, Jesus. Calling that victory into your life. You know, I have found that it is so often the case in my life that, and, and I see this in Christians where we take our eyes off of Jesus and we put our eyes on the method. Well, how does victory work in my life? How can victory happen in my life? If, I, if there's something going on in my life, how can victory happen in my life? And we think that the secret sauce is in the method. Yeah, yeah, it's Jesus, his victory on the cross. I would never deny that. But, but it's the method, right? It's the conference I have to go to. It's I got to be prayed by the special man or woman of God. It's how I've got to fast. It's Jesus plus whatever method you believe. And I want you to know that Jesus, God blesses means. He's never obligated by means. But I want to take your gaze off of the method and tell you this. His victory is, is your victory. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus and the big brother shows up in our heart, the bully runs. And as a follower of Jesus, as you walk and maybe are harassed or things are happening in your life like unexplainable fear, you don't need a method. You need the simple faith and simple trust in a beautiful Christ alone. I want to call you today to prayer, a serious prayer.
prayer. We see in that passage one more time, they're amazed. This time they're amazed because Jesus casted out a demon and the demon obeys. But I want to ask this question to you. Remember, we want to be amazed. We don't stop at being amazed. And so what do we do with this authority of Jesus? Okay, I got this. That's I'm awesome. Two things I want for you. Two things I want for me. Number one, do you accept Jesus' authority on all matters of truth? Do you just give it up to him? It doesn't mean you figured it out. It doesn't mean you don't have questions. It doesn't mean there's things in the Bible that you don't understand. The simple question is, do you just sort of say, God, I'm yours. I belong to you. God, wherever you lead, I go. God, you have the authority of, on truth. And I submit to you. Some of us here today have been so influenced by culture. Some of us Christians here have lost our way and have doubted Jesus. I want to call you back to accepting his authority on all things life, on all things truth. When the question is, what should I be doing in my life? Jesus, what do you say? <laughs> when the question is, what is a good life? What do you say? When the question is, how should I go through this dilemma? What do you say? His authority. And the second prayer I want to call you to is to trust the authority of Jesus. First, accept, come under. Number two is to trust. Not in a method, not in figuring out a special prayer and a chant, but simple, simple authority of Christ into your life, into your home, into your heart. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your beautiful name. The name with all authority. Authority over winds and waves. Authority over illnesses and leprosy. Authority over life and death. Authority over angels and demons. Authority over truth. And Lord, help us today accept you. Help us come under this. Help us say, not my will, your will. Not my way, your way. Because my thoughts and my ways don't compare to your ways and thoughts. Lord, help us accept your authority in our lives. I also pray, Lord, help us trust your victorious power over the grave and spirits of darkness. Lord, they flee in your presence. They flee from our lives when you come. Lord, be with us. Lord, help us digest this. Help us put our gaze on you. We thank you for your cross. Thank you that you died for our sins. Lord, we celebrate that. In your name we pray. Amen.